Welcome to E-Commerce with Coffee, a podcast powered by Amber Engine, where we share e-com secrets for brands over your favorite brew. We start with the caffeine and then leap enthusiastically into behind-the-scenes e-com insights that led to the success of our guests. I'm Nate Svoboda, and I'm about to serve you up the best. Let's get started. Hey, Jim, how you doing today? I'm doing fantastic. How about you? I'm doing fantastic. Thank you for asking. And so for our listeners, this is Jim Loden. He's the VP of sales at Petra Industries, which is a really awesome B2B wholesale consumer electronics business. So Jim, would really love if you could you know, give us the highlight of, of what your role entails. Um, so I oversee everything that has to do with sales for Petra. So we have many different divisions, many different arms, but uh, we have an e-commerce arm that focuses on mostly on dropship fulfillment. Um, we have uh, in that same arm, we also do some um, direct fulfillment to stores. Um, we have an inside sales team that focuses on um, the mom and pop type stores that are still out there. Like let's take, for example, the independently owned uh, True Value and Ace and old Radio Shack dealer franchise stores. And uh, we have thousands and thousands of those customers. Um, and we work a lot in the appliance accessories um, uh, fulfillment for uh, the rent-to-own business. So anytime somebody walks into one of the big major rent-to-own companies and rents, let's say a washer and dryer, the the odds are that everything that you hook those up with comes from Petra. So that's, that's kind of a big overview. Our major focus is e-com and dropship fulfillment. Got it. Absolutely. Well, I appreciate you providing that overview. So, you know, Jim, obviously given the namesake of the show, um, you're a busy guy. There's got to be some role that caffeine must play in your life. Sure. Um, you know, right now I'm drinking Diet Dr. Pepper, but my, uh, my morning to it depends where I'm at. So if I'm at home and I'm not on the road, um, I'll normally drink two 30-ounce Yetis of coffee um, prior to lunch. So I get about 60 ounces of coffee. Uh, when I'm on the road, uh, like I am now, I usually stop at Starbucks on my way to the office or the client and pick up two Vente Pikes. Oh, wow. Okay. I, uh, my personal favorite is, is the nitro cold brew at Starbucks, but I decided to change it up a little bit today. I've got one of those Cokes with coffee. It's a okay. the new, newer thing. I've never actually tried one. It's pretty good. Actually. I've got the I haven't one. tried it. Yeah, it's okay. I mean, I, I, I definitely would say it's worth the try, but, um, well, very cool. Well, Hey Jim. So obviously, you know, the Petra website, it's fast, it's slick, it's geared at businesses, right? Instead of consumers. So I imagine that probably is a part of why the product listings are, you know, a bit more to the point, you know, than some, uh, some of the product listings you'll see on the more consumer facing e-com sites. Now, this seems to me like a major example, one of many examples of, you know, businesses optimizing their listing structure for the way customers shop. Now, having said that, I'm sure that Petra's display of product and the design of the website has changed over time. What have been the biggest changes in you know, the past five years? Uh, and what does that say about how B2B e-commerce is changing? Yeah, so that's a great question. And it's this may be a long-winded answer, so I apologize in advance. But so when you look at the Petra website, it's really geared towards 
are iSales customers. So those independent retailers that you see out there, like I said, the Ace, the True Value, the old Radio Shack dealer franchises, the mom and pop stores that you see across this nation, which are thousands of them. And, you know, if you were to look at it probably five years ago, it would have been one or two bullet points, uh, a wholesale price, a retail price, et cetera. As we got deeper and deeper into dropship fulfillment, our customers started demanding a lot more on their side. So drop shipping, for example, um, for Home Depot, when we put product up on the Home Depot website, their demands are much, much higher than, um, uh, let's just say, an Amazon. Um, Amazon loves all the content, but they don't demand it. Um, you know, on Home Depot, they actually give you a rating on every single product that's on their pages. So they have millions, and, and I'm not kidding, they have millions of SKUs, and every single product is, is given a grade A through F. And it has to do with how many bullet points, how many salient bullet points, what's the verbiage, what are the keywords, how many pictures do you have, how many videos do you have, and then how many have they sold in the past week? But believe it or not, the sell-through is not the number one thing for the ranking. And then based on the ranking is where your product ends up. So if you're wearing headphones like you and I are right now, and you got a B or a C grade, well, they may have 117 pages worth of headphones. And you and I know if you're not on page one or two, you're never going to get anybody to your, your product listing unless the customer just types it in and says, I'm looking for the Bose quiet twos, right? And then it'll go right there. But if you just type in headsets, if your ranking's a B or a C, you're never going to get found. We took what Home Depot was doing years ago and incorporated it into our own site and said, we have to get better. We have to be as good as our toughest customer is on us. So we started going back to our vendors and saying, look, you know, we can put this up anywhere you want, Best Buy, Target, Home Depot, Lowe's, wherever. Um, but, you know, if you don't have all these bullet points and you don't have um, A-plus content and you don't have all these images and you don't have lifestyle images and you don't have videos, your product's going to get listed and never going to sell. And in the old days, people used to just do that. All the dropship fulfillers that are out there nationwide um, including the marketplace guys, they would just try to list it as fast, as fast as possible and get it up there and hope it would sell. Um, I call it throwing spaghetti against the wall. You just throw it up there and you hope it sells. It doesn't work that way today. So we put that demand back on ourselves and we put it back on our vendors, you know, about five years ago and said, we got to build this content out so that when one of our B2B customers is looking to buy 500 headphones, so that they can put it on their retail shelf in, you know, Itasca, Texas. Um, they know exactly what they're getting. You know, and some of those guys, they know exactly what they're getting when they look at the Bose Quiet Twos. But, you know, they may not have any clue what this new brand is. And so you have to tell a story. Um, I, I think of it in the old days, and I've been around a while. Um, think about the circulars that used to come in the Sunday paper. Right. Um, 
you're probably not even old enough to remember, but I'm sure your parents, right. they would get the Sunday paper, they would open up the middle, and there would be 60 ads in there from every retailer you can imagine. And they would thumb through the ads, and they would look at the pictures, they would look at the, the copy, and decide what store they were going to go and shop at. Um, today, that's what you have to do on your website. You know, your images have got to be crisp. They got to show lifestyle, what you can actually do with the product. Your bullet points have got to sell the product instead of the silent seller. And you, you've got to have some sort of video that shows usage. So I hope that answers your question. Again, I know it was probably long-winded, but that's kind of how we've gotten our website to where it's at. I think our website's very good. Um, and in the distribution world, I think it's fantastic. Um, I think a lot of the work we do on our customer sites is even better. Right. So I think you touched on this a little bit, but so what do you think has driven the change in the way that B2B customers are buying? That is, you know, obviously I, we talked about this the other day, you know, product listing, you know, a couple of bullet points and a picture or two used to be good enough. What has driven that change? Um, I think that more and more customers today, whether they're B2B or consumers, just prefer to shop online. Um, but they still want all the information they got when they walked into a store like a Best Buy and a blue shirt helped them. They want to get that same type of help, but they want to be able to get it from that silent partner, which is all the content that's on the website, right? I would say probably, you know, 10, 12 months ago, this nasty pandemic changed the world. It changed the way everybody shops, um, whether it's consumer or B2B. Um, you know, we saw it dramatically um, shift because we do a lot of business with a, a lot of companies that do B2B. And we saw their business fall off for a little bit because they had less people in the office. But then we saw it completely flip the other way when they said, oh, all these guys are going to work from home. And now... You know, they need a laptop, they need a microphone, they, they need uh, a web camera. Um, so just different categories drove the, drove the sales. But I would say in the last 10 months, e-commerce moved ahead 10 years. Oh, yeah. I, I really believe that we catapulted 10 years forward in 10 months. There's, there's just a ton and ton and ton of customers, Nate, that we do business with today that we were barely scratching the surface 12 months ago. And they saw the writing on the wall that if they didn't embrace e-commerce, they were, they were going to get shut down. They weren't going to have money to pay the rent. Um, they wouldn't be able to keep their employees on the payroll. And for the vast majority of them, they completely shifted their business model. And I think you're going to see a lot of retailers in the future probably close more stores because I, I believe not that customers don't want to go to retail stores, but I think a lot of retailers are going to look and say, do I really need 800 stores? Could I get away with 600? Because I'm doing so much business on the web that I wasn't doing 10 months ago. So then I'd be interested to know for anyone that's trying to head e-com efforts at their own company, you know, especially someone that's just getting started in it, what are some of the key leadership skills that are needed in order to get other stakeholders and teams on board? So, I mean, I think it's, you don't have to look as forward as you used to, right? You used to say, okay, where are we going to be five, 10 years from now? 
again, if you take that theory that we've catapulted 10 years, I think a good leader has to look at his team and, or her team and, and say, look, this is, this is no longer the future. This is now, right? You, you can pick up any data from MPD or um, the Gardner Group or whatever, and it will show you just how explosive the growth is in, in e-commerce. And so if, if you're not participating in that, if you're not letting the customers shop the way they want to shop, you're going to lose the customer, right? And it doesn't matter if it's my 25-year-old daughter who literally gets an Amazon package almost every day um, because she's still tied to my Amazon account. I can see that. Um, that's just the way they're raised, right? That That's how they're going to shop. And they almost see it as a nuisance if they have to go to a location. Unless it's a niche or a specialty store where they need it right this second, and Amazon may not be able to deliver in two hours in your city. So, I mean, there's certainly, there's some retailers out there that are, I would call niche, that are gonna continue to grow and continue to do very well. Um, and there's and there's still bigger retailers that are opening stores that have done very well by, by creating that loyalty following that they have. And customers enjoy going into those stores looking for the new deals of the week or whatever it may be. I mean, Costco is a great example. Every Saturday, they rotate their inventory. TJ Maxx and Marshalls, same thing. People go in there. There's a new company called Tacovas, which makes boots, and they make the most incredible boots, and the, the experience in their store is phenomenal. But the everyday retailer, or if you're a new retailer or, or uh, an entrepreneur getting into this business, it's so hard to build a brand and so hard to create that loyal following unless you have very deep pockets that if you choose not to participate in the e-commerce world, you're not going to make it. Well, so, and you raise an interesting point there. So, you know, you, you have these awesome uh, Jim's daily leadership lessons that you post on LinkedIn. I always like reading those, you know, so I've gathered that you've done an immense amount of relationship building and nurturing in your role at Petra and your previous jobs, your previous lives. What are some of the most important strategic relationships that brands should foster for online sales success in the current environment? So say that one more time, Nate. I want to make sure I got it right. So what are some of the most important strategic relationships that brands should be fostering in order to see success in, in online selling? I think the, the most important um, is how you go to market and i don't know if this is really your question but i'm going to say it this way so let's say you're a new brand um the first thing almost every new brand sees is here's this big fish called amazon and that's where i want to sell my product but i also want to get it in store at best buy or walmart or tar target what it strategically if you have the wrong partner or if you decide to take that animal on yourself, which I would highly not recommend to do with Amazon. Um, you're going to quickly erode your margins and your brand image um, because the, the philosophy at Amazon is just stack it high and watch it fly. That's the old retail saying, right? And you will sell a lot of product there, um, but they are going to be the market leader in pricing. Um, get And there's nothing you can do about it. Their algorithms drive the sale of products through pricing. 
and how quickly they can deliver your product to the end user, right? So if strategically you don't have a partner that understands how to position your product the, to understand the difference between seller central and vendor central, and you get your product into 50 of the 77 Amazon DCs and all of a sudden you're selling like crazy, but you have this deal over here that you're going to get your product in, let's say, 500 Best Buys, you're going to be in for a world of hurt when Best Buy comes back and says, I got to make 30 points on this and your price on Amazon, you're going to have to give me a $20 cost differential for me to be able to hit my margins. So it really comes down to who do you partner with? Who can teach you this big economy that we call e-commerce? Because dealing with Amazon versus Walmart versus Best Buy versus Staples versus it's all different. Everybody has different requirements. Everybody has different expectations. Everybody has different shipping programs. And the key is to make sure you have somebody that can help navigate those waters. And I think that's what Petra does better than anybody is, you know, we onboard new customers all the time and we're brutally honest with them. And, you know, we tell them, look, we want to sell your product on Amazon too, but we have to control the price. And here's how you do that. Um, if you just throw it out there, you'll sell a lot of product, but then Amazon needs to be your only place to go to go to market. Because if you, if you try to compete with Amazon, you're competing with yourself. And I call it the race to zero. It's how quickly can we drive your price down? Right? So we, we try to educate and teach people that. And so when I think about leadership, you know, I think it's, there's nothing more important than having the best partners and, and, and surrounding yourself with the best partners. And that's what I like to think that Petra does. Now, obviously we're talking about, um, and thank you for that, by the way, that was, that was very helpful. But so we're talking about Petra as an entity, right? I'm sure you have a, a, a mini army of people that are doing this every day. I've been reading a lot about how you know, the skills that people have that make them, you know, e-commerce gurus, let's just call, you know, it's, it's in demand, but the supply is fairly low as of right now. What are some of the really common job titles that you see, you know, that are, that are people that have some of these skill sets we're talking about? So I think the, the, the job title, you know, I don't know, we, we've actually changed our job titles three or four times in the seven years I've been at Petro. Um, my folks, we call them, so I have regional sales directors that are out in the field and they live, breathe, and eat at those customer sites, right? So at Amazon, at, at Walmart, at Target and Best Buy, at Staples, at QVC and HSN. And so I literally have them in Boston and Minnesota and, and San Francisco and Arizona and Florida and Atlanta, all across the country. Then we have um, content coordinators. Uh, that helps support those folks. So my content coordinators, all they do all day long is build content. So they work with our PIM team, product information team, to get all the information from our vendors so we can upload it to all the different sites. So every site is different. Every site has different requirements. And so you may be able to build a SKU, for example, on Walmart or Amazon in five minutes. It may take you weeks at Home Depot. It's a different process at every single customer. So our content coordinators are experts at that, and that's what they do. They constantly build content on thousands and thousands of SKUs every week, and their, their job is to get those products up. 
the regional sales directors that are out in the field, their job is to work with the customers that says, here's all the new product we have, what fits into your core categories? Which of these products would you like? Once we get all that done, which is a ton, um, we then have customer support that works between the content coordinators and RSDs and our actual customers, so Best Buy and Walmart and Home Depot and all them, they work directly with the buyers at those locations that say, hey, we're having problems with this content. Hey, this product may require works, which is a, a, a back-end thing that you have to fill out whenever you're shipping anything that has batteries or lithium and sometimes cotton, uh, copper. Um, and then, um, then we have analysts that all they do all day long for all those customers is analyze their business that says what's selling, what's not selling, why is it not selling? This price in the market may be $99, but you have it on your site for $119. How do we get it to $99? Um, and then the regional sales directors go back and they work with the customers and the vendors to say, how do we get this position so you can sell it? Right. Now, you know, obviously prioritizing to-dos across a team is, is a whole beast, right? Especially for organizations that are, you know, just kickstarting projects that are new to them in a lot of cases. Now, I know that you've done a ton of work at Petra prioritizing optimization strategies. So, but to the brands out there that are just now making the shift into e-commerce, how would you recommend they prioritize all of the operational shifts that are going to go along with that? You know, I think you got to make the right hiring decisions. You got to hire folks that understand this business. Um, you know, as you look at some of my daily leadership posts, I, I think it comes back and you just, you surround yourself with people that know how to do it, right? Am I a content expert? No, but I got like six of them on my team that are. Um, am, do I know the inside and out, every little nook and cranny about Walmart? No, but Mark Conley does. I mean, they call him the mayor of Walmart for, you know, and literally, you know, prior to COVID, you'd walk into the, the lobby at Walmart and he would hold court with everybody, you know, and the buyers would line up to meet with them. So my advice would be is surround yourself with people that are smarter than yourself and surround yourself with experts on those, um, on those different avenues you plan on going down. There's tons of them out there. And as a leader, uh, one thing that can be intimidating is a lot of those folks that are going to be way smarter than you are probably going to be half your age. You know, it's, it, that's the world we live in. And, you know, it's, they're coming out of college. They've been living this life forever. Many of them may have a degree in information management type systems, but a lot of them, they just know it. You know, they, they've been around it so long um, and they pick it up extremely quickly. Yeah, I think, I think this relates a lot to what you're talking about. I was reading uh, an article the other day that, that um, asserted the next generation of CMOs are on TikTok right now. Yeah. You know, the, like the people that are living and breathing it today, that's going to be the, the future. If you, yeah, I agree. I mean, if you look at TikTok, I mean, it's full of CMOs and they're all 28 years old or younger, right? But, you know, they are creating brand loyalty to their name or to what they represent. And they're driving sales like crazy through Amazon and Walmart and everything else just by embedding links, et cetera. Um, and brands are sending them tons and tons of product to promote. 
and people are buying it. It's, it, I think that's a great point, Nate. I mean, I think when I, you know, I'm not like on TikTok all the time, but I do look at TikTok because I think there's a lot of great things out there. I mean, I follow a couple of people on TikTok that they post what's great at Costco this week, right? I look at it religiously on Saturday to know what I'm going to go look for. <laughs> See, you're, you're a smarter man than I. I just I just go to Costco and buy whatever whatever the will tells me to. <laughs> right. So kind of along the line of the, the last question that I asked. So I, obviously, you know, this seems like the message here is have the people on your team that have the skills and the know-how or at least the drive to do this successfully. But if we're thinking about the investments that a company has to make, what are some of the most important investments for a growing company to make in order to ensure scalability in the long term of their order fulfillment in e-commerce specifically? Well, in order fulfillment, I would say, unless you're very small, you need a partner. So you you either need somebody as big as a Petra or one of our competitors, um, or you need a what's called a 3PL, which is third-party logistics. Because if you're going to try to figure it out yourself and you're going to ship on multiple sites, it's just going to be too, too, um, too costly. It, it, my advice would be to find a partner um, that really understands the e-commerce fulfillment. Unless you're selling really big ticket items that have a lot of margin and you're okay if you sell 15 to 20 a week. You know, we ship thousands of packages an hour. <laughs> um, and what you will find out as you get into this business very quickly is if you do not meet the shipping expectations of whatever you're selling to whomever you're selling, you will incur a penalty. And those penalties rack up very quickly. Um, I've had I've had new vendors, new, new customers, uh, new manufacturers come to me and say, I tried to do Amazon on my own, or I tried to do Walmart on my own, or I tried to do Home Depot on my own. And I paid out a hundred grand in penalties last year and I only made 60,000 in profit. Oh my goodness. <laughs> so I'm 40, yeah. Because look, at the end of the day, when you go on Amazon and it says you buy it today, it's going to be there in two days. If it's not there in two days, you're going to get a penalty. Um, so if you get an order, for example, every order we get before four o'clock ships the same day, it's gone and sh it's shipped. If you get an order and you don't ship that same day, that's a penalty, right? If if it doesn't arrive on the day it's supposed to arrive, that's a penalty. Um, if it arrives damaged, that's a penalty. So if you're getting into the e-commerce world and you're going to try to take it on yourself without having any strategic partners, you better have very deep pockets or you better have hired some experts from Amazon and Walmart and, and other big players that already understand the industry and how to put together a world-class dropship fulfillment in uh, facility, right? And so again, if you're only, if you only got to ship 30 or 40 items a day, you could, you could probably have two or three people that do that. Right. But I don't think anybody gets in the business to just ship, you know, a hundred items a week, right? It's very difficult unless you're selling $20,000 items to make a profit and make a living that way with five people on your payroll. Right. Absolutely. And, and, you know, you mentioned this a second ago. So 
you know, drop shipping is a great solution for many different kinds of sellers. What are some of the changes that you've seen in drop shipping norms or in how companies have come to use this service more innovatively? Um, well, a, a couple of things. One, it's, it's become lightning fast, right? So the expectation five years ago, really outside of everybody except for Amazon was, if it gets there in four or five days, it's fine. That's no longer the expectation. Everybody has the same expectation as Amazon, which is two days, right? And everybody's striving to get to one day. The, the other thing is the size of the box matters. Didn't used to matter. It used to matter how much did it weigh, right? Now, um, the LTL trucks, the trucks that you see going everywhere that say Amazon Prime on them, the big 18-wheelers, all the airplanes, all the FedEx planes, all the UPS planes. It's all about cube, like how big is the box? The smaller you can get your box, the more cost efficient it is to ship. So I'll give you a great example. You could ship um, an iPhone probably within two days for like three or four bucks, right? Um, and that iPhone's $800, right? You could ship an antenna. Let's just say uh, an antenna that goes on a car or um, a smaller antenna that you might put on your house if you don't live in a city. That could cost you $80 to ship because it's so long. Just because of the length, right? It's called DIMS, which is dimensions. So they take the weight into account, but the dimensions are way more important. And we've seen that get smaller and smaller. And for many reasons. One, if you ship into Amazon's warehouses, they're trying to fit as much stuff into their warehouse as they possibly can. They obviously want to turn it as fast as possible, but they also want product to be able to fit on the shelves. So if you have a box that's taken up, you know, four feet of room and you're selling one a week and you could put 16 boxes there that are each selling one a week, you'd rather put 16 boxes there. So dimensions and size matter. And I've seen um, vendors get very good at this in the last two years, trying to take all that extra stuff out of the box that causes it to be so big. But you run that fine balancing act of, can I make sure I ship this where the box doesn't get damaged, my product doesn't get damaged, but it's still in a smaller dimension box, right? So many, many, many vendors literally have teams of engineers that work on how do we box this thing so it's profitable, right? If you would have told me that five years ago, I would have told you you're crazy, you're wasting your money. But today that's how it's done. And you know, th there's tons of engineers sitting at FedEx, UPS, even, even the USPS that are saying, this is how many boxes I can hold that are this, this size on this flight, right? And so if you don't fit into that nice little size that they're talking about, there's a premium charge to ship. Um, and then it, it gets even more when you try to ship it two days, right? So you may have that long uh, antenna box and it may be $80 to ship in four days, but it may be 120 if you want to ship it in two. Right. So that's where you have to get really creative. And that's where you need partners that are experts at logistics like we are, which we say on, you know, on those types of partners, we got to figure a way to ship a hundred of these to an Amazon DC so you can drive your costs down and you can ship it on one pallet 
And so then the cost per item becomes $4 instead of 80, right? It actually costs you more money to ship one than it would cost you to ship 40. Um, but that's because now you're shipping out on a pallet. You know, there's a pallet charge. You divide it out times 40 and it becomes much more, much more cost effective. So no, that's a long-winded answer, but it's the, the business has just changed. There's so much analytics that goes into everything, Nate, whether it's shipping, whether it's the cost of shipping, whether it's how fast you can ship it, um, whether it's how many inventory turns you can get on it, how much do I need to order? You know, it's just all, all analytics. And, and that's why, you know, two years ago, I didn't have an analytics team and now I do. And every team has one. So it's, you know, I have an analytics team for every one of those customers. And, and the reason is, is because if I don't, then my competitor will, right? We have to tell our customers, this is the value that we add by you doing business with us. Right. That's absolutely fair. So now you made an interesting point. I was listening to a podcast the other day where the, the host made the, uh, the argument that, you know, all other things being held equal, the ability to say free shipping to the consumer is what's going to entice them to buy. Again, all things being held equal. You know, obviously with the costs we were just discussing, giving free shipping to the consumer, you, you know, you probably have to eat that at some point or, or that must have something or some kind of an impact on your, your bottom or your top line. So, you know, ultimately my question, should a company just starting to sell online expect a reduction in profit margins, an increase, or, you know, just simply a different model where costs and income shift? I think your expectation has to be that free shipping is demanded today, right? Um, I don't think it was demanded two years ago. I think it was kind of expected, but now it's demanded. Um, if you... And you see a lot of customers play games with it. So I'm going to sell you, you know, this Dr. Pepper for 12 bucks, but it's $9 shipping. So it's really $21. I'm going to sell it to you for $19 with free shipping. Um, and they do that to kind of get a, around the algorithms that are out there to, to try to trick the system. But at the end of the day, the consumer gets it, right? The consumer is always looking at the total price. I think it's very difficult to start in this market today and expect that you're going to be able to charge shipping and the consumer is going to pay it and it's not going to affect you. You have to assume that, I mean, if you go to any site and, and probably the going average now is about 35 bucks, they're saying anything over $35 is free. And that's total basket. That's not one item. So you buy a $17 item and $20 item, you get the 37 bucks is free. I think you have to build it into your cost model. We call it TMP, total net profit. Your total net profit has to include that shipping mechanism. And if you don't, you're not gonna, you're not gonna drive as much sales, right? We build it into everything that we look at. We assume that all of our customers are gonna um, have free shipping and their algorithm is gonna demand that they make X amount of margin after shipping. So when we calculate cost out, we calculate it out after shipping. So um, it absolutely has affected margins over the last seven years, but that's how the consumer shops, right? And so does the distributor take a little less margin? Absolutely. Does the vendor take a little bit less margin? Absolutely. 
Does the retailer? Absolutely. But the lead, the retailer sliver is much smaller than the rest of us because they're they're the sales engine, right? So um, I think as a as a new vendor, you have to you have to operate off of what we call a total net profit model. Don't assume if you assume that you're not going to get charged for shipping at some point in somebody's model, um, you're either not going to be part of their go forward plan, or you're going to take a dramatic hit to your P and L once you realize you're getting it. Right. So would it be fair to say then that, you know, companies are, they should be willing to put up with these additional costs because of the increase in volume that e-commerce is going to provide them? I don't know if put up is the right statement, but that's the expectation, right? And you have to plan it into your business model because if you don't, then you're going to have a rude awakening. Right. So uh, how long do you think until we just get drones uh, delivering everything to us? I, I think if, if companies could figure that out, they would do it. I mean, you know, you have companies playing around with, with drones and driverless cars, et cetera, et cetera. But I, I don't know that we're very close to that. But I absolutely know you have the Elon Musks of the world and, and the Tim Cooks of the world and those types of people that are going to continue to push the innovative buttons. And, and I'm glad they do. I mean, I think that um, we should always be striving to get better. Absolutely. So, you know, as you've worked um, through optimizing sales for Petra, right, over your tenure there, when there are products that just simply aren't selling, what's the most common culprit? Is it, you know, between some factors like, is it sales funnels? Is it the product pages themselves? Any, you know, competition for that product or maybe just simple demand or lack thereof? Yeah, so that's a great question. So I think we've gotten much better at that than we used to. You know, we used to uh, love to just onboard all new vendors. Uh, now it's what we call white space. We we try to identify the white space and we move backwards. So we have those great relationships. Like I talked about where we have people all over the country in Minnesota and in Arizona and California and Boston and New York, et cetera. And when they're meeting with those head merchants at those big retailers, we ask them, what are you looking for? I mean, Nobody, almost nobody says, I'm looking for another headset, right? Think about how many headphone lines there are. Now, that doesn't mean they're not looking for something that's different in the headset world. Like, I know your listeners probably can't see me because I think this is just strictly a podcast. But if you look at my headphones, Nate, these are what are called aftershocks. They don't go in my ears. They, yeah. sit, they sit in front of my ears. And they work through bone conduction. So the, the, the noise vibrates through your bones and goes to your eardrum. So you don't have to stick your fingers in your ear or you don't have to plug earplugs into your ear. Uh, you don't have to jam anything into your ear. And I can hear everything going on around me. So when we were talking um, you know, with this particular brand, we went to our biggest customers and said, would you be interested in this particular type of headphone and everybody was like absolutely never heard of anything like it it's totally different everybody's got over the ear you know everybody's got it in the ear but nobody's ever seen this and you know it took off like crazy and the reason it did was we basically launched it at qvc and hsn where you could see the host how it works right 
and they actually took them off and put them on a mannequin head that was hollow and you could hear the sound going through the through the uh, material on the mannequin head wow when we first launched it at other retailers it didn't take off because it's very difficult to tell that story through bullet points and images and even if you do a video it's still very difficult now here's what i'll tell you when we launched it back on hsn and qvc all the other retailer sales took off because they're like oh i'm going to take this in oh i can go into best buy and buy these and they walked into best buy and they picked them up and they bought them they went into costco and they bought them and you know that so that's what we look for we we work with our merchants at our customers that say Where's the white space? What are you looking for? So a great example, 10 months ago, the whole world changed. You know, every merchant came to us and said, we need PPE. We need masks. We need, we need sanitizer. We need wipes. We need shields. We went and found that. You know, we had never done business in that, those categories at all. Um, but they're like, look, there's going to be a big demand. We'll, we'll bet big on it. And, and, and it was a home run. We do that in every category, you know, because of COVID, one of the next things that took off was outdoor living. So everybody who's now working from home is like, I got to get on my patio. I got to do something outside. So we started bringing in more outdoor speakers and other stuff that you would see, you know, out in your backyard, in your gardens, et cetera, et cetera. So, you know, the, the answer is really you work with your customers and identify that white space. If you're a me too product, it's going to be very difficult to sell in today's world. You can sell off a price point, right? But who wants to do that? Because you've got to sell millions to make pennies. Um, so the real, the real key is to be innovative um, and understand where that white space is. You know, we have, we have these meetings all day long with, with the head merchants and, you know, they, you know, when they said, did go get us masks, I was like, I was really nervous. You know, I was like, well, how long is this pandemic going to last? You know, nobody knew 12 months ago that, you know, we'd still be in the kind of the boat that we're in right now. And, um, but when you start hearing it from four or five or six different retailers, you, you understand there's a huge demand for it. Right. So you don't, you know, I find it, it's a lot harder to create demand than to supply it. So if they're telling you what they need, then you just got to go find it. So we have, you know, we have folks on the ground in Asia that help us find those, those factories that can create it. Right. That's, that's very interesting. Yeah. You, you gotta, gotta be something special about your value proposition. Right. I think that's kind of the lesson I took away from that. Now, you know, Jim, Jim, I know we only have a a couple more minutes and I want to be conscientious of your time, but I really, really want to hear, I read on your resume that you had a very interesting story uh, with Steve Jobs and Bob Shanahan would love if you could talk through that a little bit. Yeah, that takes me back a ways. So um, it was literally 20, 21 years ago. uh, I was, uh, the VP of business development at CompUSA. And, um, you know, we were looking to drive down costs, to be honest. Like, how can we drive down costs? So, um, for those young listeners, you may not remember who CompUSA is, but CompUSA had about 250 stores and they really owned the world in the late 90s and early 2000s in the retail world of technology. So, 
uh, laptops, desktops, monitors, everything you need to think about technology, almost everybody bought from CompUSA. Um, we also carried Apple products. And one of the things I consistently notice is that our customer service team was always answering questions from Apple customers that were not very happy about their experience at CompUSA. And the main reason was, is, you know, back in those days, we had tons of people on the retail floor selling product, but they were really Windows experts. They, they were selling, uh, God, I'm dating myself now, Packard Bell and, and, and IBM and, um, you know, this is before Lenovo and HP and, and Sony laptops. But we also sold Apple, but nobody knew how Apple really worked, right? And in those days, you had what was called authorized Apple resellers. And there was probably, I don't know, maybe four or 500 of them. But they were like mom and pop type stores. They were in like 1,200 square foot boxes and et cetera. And, you know, my CEO came to me and he said, look, we need to come up with a way to do like Neiman Marcus does. Let's create a store within a store. Like, you know, if you walked into, you know, like Kohl's just did with Sephora, right? So I'm like, what are you talking about? He's like, let's let's find a way to like sell a portion of our store. And I was like, what about Apple? And he goes, really? You think anybody's going to buy Apple from us? And I was like, well, let's let's see what we can do. So, you know, we did some decent volume with Apple, but we we arranged a meeting with Steve Jobs, and we flew out to California, me and a few other guys, Seth Cohen, who who worked for Apple, and we met with Steve and Bob Shanahan, and we said, look, here's what we have. We've got about 1,500 to 2,000 square feet. We're willing to let you do whatever you want with. You know, we'll, we'll charge you a small price for the square footage. And, um, but then you can do whatever you want to it. I don't, I don't care what you do to it. But the only stipulation is you got to hire and train the people inside of that little area. And that way your customer gets a good experience. And they're like, let's test it. Let's do it in in the stores in DFW. And I think in DFW, we had like 15 stores at that time. And in the first month, sales went up 3,000%. It just skyrocketed. It was oh nuts. God. Word of mouth went everywhere. And all the Apple users would come in, and they couldn't believe the experience they got because they're dealing with one of their own. They were dealing with somebody who knew Apple. And literally, two months later, you know, Bob Shanahan called me and said, Steve says, roll it out to all 250 stores. We'll write you a check to renovate every single store. And it was it was tens of millions of dollars they spent rolling it out. And they flew all of those people to California to train them. They spent a lot of money. And, you know, of course, I thought I was a genius because I negotiated a non-compete, which was CompUSA would have the exclusive retail rights to, to the Apple store, store within a store. So at that time, my competitors, Best Buy and Circuit City and a few others, they could no longer have Apple. So that was great. Our sales went through the roof for years. And then about four years later, one of my regional managers called me and said, hey, you may want to come to San Francisco. And I'm like, why? He's like, they're building an Apple store across the street. And so I flew out to San Francisco and there's this Taj Mahal of Apple stores. It was all glass. It was beautiful right there by Market Street. And I was just like, I can't believe it. We we never thought of a, an OEM or a vendor opening their own store. It was unheard of. Nobody had ever done it. So that's what ha that was what happened. But it was it was incredible to meet Steve. It was incredible to see his genius. Um, 
he was very demanding. He was, I mean, like he, if he wanted a T crossed, the T had to be crossed. Um, everything in his stores were meticulously planned out. And th those first stores, they were all black and white, just like, you know, I know now they wear a lot of blue shirts and different colors, but at that time they all had black polos. All the signs were black and white. They ripped up all the carpet. They put down white tile and it was just an experience. And that, you know, I'll never forget those, those years forever. They were, they were phenomenal. And that's awesome to be able to say, I mean, even just to be able to say you spoke with Steve Jobs, that's awesome. But to say that you, you uh, negotiated a business deal with, I mean, that's, that's awesome. And especially yeah. looking at, at, the Apple store today, I mean, from what you just described, you know, maybe a little bit, but it doesn't seem like it's changed a whole lot from even there. Yeah, I think his philosophy was always keep it simple. I mean, you hear that all the time, keep it simple, stupid, but, you know, kiss the kiss theory. But that was his theory was neat, clean, almost like a hospital environment, like it was spotless. But I'm telling you. He's like, if he wanted that sign there, it was going to be there in all 250 stores. Um, and they literally, besides hiring all the staff, then they went and hired regional managers to cover. So they had regional managers working for Apple, but they were going to all the CompUSA stores just to make sure that everything was 100% the way they wanted it every day. Man. Well, that, I mean, gosh, I guess you got to do that when you want to become one of the most valuable companies in the world, right? When right. first day at a trillion. Yeah, Exactly. Well, you know, Jim, we're, we're a little over time. I just want to thank you so much for the conversation today. This has been absolutely fantastic. I know I'm sure our listeners have really gotten a lot out of this conversation. Um, and I really, really appreciate you taking up the evening for it. No, I appreciate it. And uh, I love what you're doing. So keep up the good work. Thanks, Jim. Thank you. That's it for this episode of e-commerce with coffee powered by Amber engine. If you haven't gotten your fix yet, be sure to get more e-commerce brand secrets on our website at amberengine.com. And don't forget to subscribe for more episodes.